Hi everyone, Data Stories number 21. Hi Moritz, how are you? Hi Enrico, how are you doing? Good, good, good. There is some sun coming from the windows, and but it's chilly. It's still very chilly, which I don't like, but it's good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a couple of special, special guests today and about the topic, can visualization save the world? <laughs> And we have Kim Rees from Periscopic. Hi, Kim. And we have Jake Porway from Datakind. Wow. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Hi, Enrico. Hi, Moritz. Hi, Kim. Hi, Kim. Hi, Jake. Are you there? No, <laughs> Jake is not there yet. <laughs> that was so bound to happen. <laughs> He's going to show up at some point. <laughs> Okay. He's, just ta he's taking a nap. I mean, he's taking a nap. Why not? Or he's just too busy. <laughs> just too busy. <laughs> it's, uh, ni it's nice to start with uh, this episode. Let's just start with Kim. We wanted to start with Kim, anyways, right? Yeah, sure. No problem. That's, no I'm problem. better anyway. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Kim, um, can visualization save the world? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good night. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> End of the episode. Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> Can visualization save the world? Uh, you know, that's I've been thinking about that a lot since you guys posed the question for this podcast. And I love that you guys are, are you know, addressing this. I think it's a lot of, you know, it's interesting to, to think about. And it's funny because even though, you know, I've been doing this for nine years now under the tagline of do good with data, I think we don't, we, we rarely sort of take a step back and think about it and think about why well, are we really you know, saving the world? Are we, what, you know, what kind of impact are we having? And so it caused me to really think about it. And, um, you know, I think that, I don't think there's a, like a silver bullet to, to save the world <laughs> in any, you know, in any sort of sector, or any technology or anything like that. Um, but, but I think that, you know, we've made a lot of changes in the world, you know, and not just recently, not with the recent, uh, um, sort of, uh, you know, the, the recent interest in data visualization. I think that data visualization has helped, you know, for centuries in, in making the world a better place. You know, I think back to, uh, you know, some of the historic examples of like Florence Nightingale and Jon Snow and people who were using visualization to explain things and to show people, you know, what is actually happening, that, to sort of demystify <laughs> There's Jake. <laughs> hey guys, sorry I'm late. Oh, Jake Just came in. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, carry on. Uh, so, uh, but I think sort of these historic examples are are good because I think they're probably for as many of these famous examples like Florence Nightingale and the others. There are probably hundreds of others that we don't know about. You know that somebody's made a chart just to prove that there is a, you know, pollution somewhere or that people are being killed by accidents in, you know, whatever, you know, so I'm sure that there have been, you know, even in things that we know about, like automobile safety, you know, that people have been, you know, analyzing this for, for decades and showing charts and graphs to prove that, you know, certain aspects are dangerous or that high speed limits lead to more fatalities and, and things like that. So I think that visualization has changed the world dramatically. I know that, you know, people use it for those, 
for those needs. And I think that people who are, who naturally want to, you know, who are naturally drawn to data visualization or charts and graphs or whatever you want to call it, um, that they are naturally doing good in the world as well, because they sort of, they want to prove (laughs) those, that those things exist and that there are those problems in the world. So Mm -hmm. that's my take. So Kim, I wanted to ask you uh, very briefly. So I think that there might be people who are not totally familiar with what you guys do at Periscopic. So can you Mm -hmm. briefly introduce, so if I go to your own page, I see Periscopic do good with data which mm-hmm. resonates really well with the topic that we are <laughs> discussing today. So can you tell us a little bit about the company, what you do, and how you plan to do good with data, or you did good with data? <laughs> <laughs> we always do good with data. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we're a periscopic. Um, we are a socially conscious data visualization firm. We're based in Portland, Oregon. Uh, And like you said, our tagline is do good with data, which means that we help organizations and companies uh, to compel people to action on issues such as environmentalism, human rights, data transparency, uh, you know, sustainability, and many other issues. So that's basically it in a nutshell. Mm. Jake, Jake, are you there? (laughs) <laughs> no, come on! I cannot believe it. Yes, I am. Oh, yes, Jay, I'm here. You're <laughs> Excellent. Let's, no, let's use I, the opportunity. I gotta call Time Warner and yeah, give him a piece of my mind. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> be quick. Ask me anything that can be answered in about fifteen. Jake, seconds. can you briefly introduce yourself and uh, Datakind? Uh, yeah, surely. So uh, I'm Jake Porway, uh, and I work at Datakind, uh, where we try to team up pro bono data scientists and other uh, data geeks, data artists, data visualists with social causes and social organizations who are suddenly finding themselves awash in data, uh, totally unexpectedly, and who aren't really prepared to use those to fulfill their missions. So uh, we try to get people who have the amazing skills to work with data and visualize data and want to do more with it to work alongside groups like the Red Cross or the uh, United Nations who have all this data that they could use to further their missions but may not really have the resources to do. Okay, great. Uh Uh-oh, did I get it in there? Did it cut out? No, no, it's okay. No, it's fine. Okay, yeah, no. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> no, don't worry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, one thing I, I'm wondering is like, do you really, are you just the broker or do you also provide, let's say, uh, shared workspace or do you, I think you also run workshops occasionally. So are you just telling the people, you know, there's this other person you could talk to and then hope it works out? Or how, how much do you uh, hold hands in the process? Yeah, actually? yeah. That's, that's a really great question. We're very hand-holdy. We're, mm-hmm. very, we're, we're friendly people. We're very touchy-feely. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, so, yeah. So we actually go beyond and try to um, facilitate a whole really collaboration between mm-hmm. people. We try to bring groups of people who have the time and, and energy to work on a data science project together with the social organization and really make sure that throughout the process we're there making sure that if they need resources, we can get them. If they need to build the team, we're there to build it. Uh, if there's translation that needs to be done, we're there for that. Um, I see everyone smiling. Maybe that's because I'm just cutting out a little bit. Um, so I'll stop mentioning it and just pray for the best. Um, we'll edit this on my recorded version. So um, what I was going to say about that, though, is I think that you, you're highlighting something really important, though, which is that 
I imagine you guys see this in data visualization and data work in general is that it's very difficult in this stage to hand someone off to a data problem because I think a lot of people who are looking for visualizations or looking for an analysis aren't really sure yet how to articulate what they need. Um, we spend a lot of time sitting with social organizations who come in and say, I've got data, now what? What do I do? <laughs> And there's a lot of process that there where we sit them down and, and almost more like, I think we act more as therapists than project managers and just saying that that's okay. This is what we want to think about. This is sort of the, uh, you know, this is, this is how you can address data in this way. This is why you don't need to be scared of it. And let's really understand a little bit more about what you guys want to do. Mm -hmm. So yes, lots of handholding, lots of hugs. So your motto is relax with data. Periscoping <laughs> <laughs> yes. is too good with data. <laughs> it should be exactly. Don't don't panic with data. Good yeah, I mean, with data. I I can imagine that because like half of my clients, it's fairly similar that they they come with the thought like, yeah, we totally need a visualization, and in the process you discover, okay, first we need to sort of establish a certain way of talking about data, investigating data, just getting comfortable with data before we can actually move to the real product. And yeah, I mean, probably I you have seen Jeff Thorpe's uh, post for the, the HBR as well, where he also stresses that point uh, mm -hmm. that visualization shouldn't be thought from the end product, but more the, the, the process that happens in between. And that's, this is the exciting, the exciting part and the actual, let's say, yeah, product is the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Jake. Sorry, this is, yeah. So, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I totally agree that, um, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. I thought that was a great time for that article to hit when we were getting ready to do this podcast. Um, because I, th I think, you know, so many people think of, at least on our end, I should say, I should say up front, I'm not a designer or really a data visualization person myself. So you guys may see a very different, uh, environment and different community, but a lot of the people that come asking for visualization want to see, they want to see an answer as well that they're really looking for, is they want to know that this is what happened with my donors, or this is how this program went, or I want this big, messy CSV to turn into something beautiful that I can see. And so much of the process of digging into data is exploratory that I really think that um, using visualization should be a process of asking those questions and, and re or, or getting to a point where you can ask questions of data. Uh, and I think that's really, um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just leave it there and say that I think that's really what Jared was hitting on um, in a lot of ways. And I think very, very important for us to sort of take up as a responsibility is to con convey that it's not just for this end goal, but for helping you explore something and raise other questions. Yeah, I think this is something that is emerging more and more clearly lately that, I mean, data visualization projects uh, comprise a lot of different uh, processes and stages and we tend to, to discuss about the visualization we, we tend to discuss a lot about visualization design itself, which is basically a tiny proportion of the work that people do when they have to, to run a visualization project, right? And I've heard these kind of things all the time from many different sources, many different kind of professionals and organizations. So I think that's really interesting that visualization is actually not really only about visualization, it's more about data and exploring this data, 
putting this this data in the format that you need and a lot of other uh, of, of other processes, right? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Kim. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think there's so much, so much of the process is about everything else other than visualizing it. And, you know, I would say probably 90% of it is not visualization. And that visualization is this tiny little creative bit of it that's where, you know, it's sort of where the magic happens, where you can set, it's like turning on the light and suddenly, wow, there it is. And it's fantastic, and and then you can start exploring things. But there's a lot of lead up to it, a lot of build up to it, a lot of gathering, a lot of parsing, a lot of making sure everything's in the right format, making sure that people know what data they're supposed to be getting us. Uh, you know, lots of questions that are asked, lots of uh, you know, we rely on the domain expertise of m most of the organizations that we work with because they know their data inside and out, and so. There's a lot of hand-holding up front in terms of, do, is this the best data to tell the story you want? Or is this the best data, uh, you know, to explore in terms of getting at that story? Uh, so there's a, there's so much stuff that happens up front and just in terms of dialogue. And I think a lot of people, that's, that's a, kind of a scary part for a lot of people because they don't see much happening and they're... They're like, where's the visualization? You know, where when is this magic thing going to happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. people expect to dump their data and then suddenly get some visual thing out of it. So, so yeah, I mean, there's a huge process leading up to it, and then then there's the magic bit, and and then the rest is is easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just get the magic bit right, and the rest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the rest <laughs> follows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting because until recently, before we had this big data kind of thing happening, the way people used to approach problems was starting from a problem and then trying to gather the data they needed, right? And now it's kind of like the opposite. You start from the data and you think about what kind of problem can I address with with that. But I think by doing that, we lost a lot of a lot of important uh, skills, or at least uh, the right approach to to deal with some problems. And one thing that that actually surprises me, I think I, I am a big fan of the of Jake's article. I really enjoyed reading it. And after reading it, I was thinking about, okay, we have this whole data visualization, data science kind of thing is, is a big, big hype right now. And uh, so there are books and teachers about how to do this and that, a lot of visualization designs, how to do it correctly, how to run clustering algorithms, how to gather lots of data, lots of technical stuff. But there is very, very little training or even discussion about how to approach, how to, how to find the interesting problems or how to tackle interesting problems. And I think that that's a mm. huge gap. Mm. How do you deal with that, Kim? In, in like, how do you decide which which projects to work on? And is it more that you are reaching out to organizations where you say it would be worthwhile to do something for or on this topic, or is it more organizations know your work and come to you and and say we have this data set and can you it's do mostly, something with it? Right. It's mostly the latter. Uh -huh. uh, people, organizations come to us and say we you know we want we're working in this area. And here's the data we've been gathering about it. And can you help us show, you know, for instance, all of the oil exploration that's happening in Peru, for instance. And so then we work with them to sort of figure out what the best way to visualize that and show the impact of it and show the impact on the indigenous peoples and whatnot. 
Um, but then there are times when, you know, we might contact an organization if we really like what they're doing and, you know, just to sort of initiate that process and, and you know, introduce ourselves and say we'd like to help them. And sometimes that, you know, leads to something. Um, and then there's the third category, which is uh, the internal projects that we do, mm-hmm. uh, which we have, you know, one or two a year typically that we do. Uh, and, you know, it's just whenever we have a bit of time, you know, when we have a couple of resources free in between projects, we just pick something that, that is either timely or somebody's interested in. So we have this sort of running list of what I would like to work on <laughs> in, my, in my spare time. <laughs> and we have this great list <laughs> and some of them are too old. Is to it even getting bigger or smaller, the list? <laughs> it's, it's getting bigger, <laughs> I mean, which, is, which is great, but also really heartbreaking because we yeah, can't yeah. do all of them. Sure. Um, but but it's, it's really rewarding to have those projects where we're not really hindered by anything other than our own time and imagination and, and whatnot. Uh, so we you know, tackle everything from research to, you know, all the stuff we normally do, which is, you know, all of the steps to getting to visualization and then PR and whatnot. Uh, so that's really, really rewarding because I think that, you know, as a, an organization who has a tagline, do good with data, everybody who comes to work for, for us is has that mindset. So they all have great ideas about for instance, either the gun visualization that we just just did, or we also did uh, a debate tool around the presidential debates. And so it was it's really interesting because everybody sort of comes together with new ideas and throws everything together in the mix. And so we have this huge base camp list of <laughs> additional features, <laughs> version three and, and whatnot. So it's a sure. lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that gun, gun piece was was impressive. I think you um, published at beginning of the year or so, sometime in January, right? End of January. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think it, it it was really interesting. It, it on the first day it really raised a lot of awareness to the issue. I think, mm-hmm. uh, as far as I can see from you know my my Twitter world. <laughs> 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 But at the same time, I also it sparked a few discussions really on how to deal with these issues, if the approach is correct, and a few people mm-hmm. criticized it. And But many were also really impressed with this combination of combining the storytelling and this sort of dramatic structure with mm-hmm. such an exploratory approach. And so I think it was was a very timely piece uh, to publish. Yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you. It was, I, we definitely were... Uh, you know, it's the, the whole Newtown thing spurred us into action in terms of, you know, it happened. And then we just said, you know, we have to, everyone wanted to use their skill sets to, to address the issue. So, you know, we, there was really no question about, you know, are we going to do a piece or not? We we were, it was just a matter of, you know, do we want to focus on, on just Newtown? Do we want to focus on gun control? Mm. Do we want to focus on something else? And, so we took more of an approach of, of looking at all the victims of the shootings. And we kind of felt like that was a way to bridge the gap between like the liberal and conservative mindsets because everyone's so sort of indoctrinated into these these camps of, you know, either gun control or gun advocacy that you really, it, it's so hard to break down those barriers. So we felt like if we focus just on the victims, that that could be a unifying point for people that could really bring people together because there's no question that you don't, (laughs) that these people should be dead. You know, they shouldn't be dead. Right. So Mm -hmm. uh, it it sort of allows, we were hoping it would allow people to, 
to, you know, discuss the issue in a more real way rather than just sort of bringing up their party's, uh, you know, arguments or the N- the NRA's uh, arguments, you know, the things that they've been programmed to say. Um, and so we've actually been really, uh, you know, um, I think surprised and, and happily um, uh we just really enjoyed the outcome of it because it did spur a lot of those discussions where, you know, a gun advocate will come in and start, you know, tout, saying, you know, they're the NRA's arguments against gun control. And it really sort of starts a discussion about like, let, let's not talk about gun control. Let's talk about what's happening with these, you know, almost 10,000 people who were killed. And, you know, what can we do other than, you know, the things that are being proposed. Are there other things we can do? Are, you know, a lot of this is around domestic violence. So, you know, are there things we can do in domestic violence that are preventive rather than focusing just on these guns? You know, so I think it's it spurred a lot of conversation in, in terms of gun control and gun violence. Um, and it's also spurred a lot of uh, discussion in terms of... Um, data visualization and, and how to approach it. And it's been, it's been really exciting and really interesting. I went to, uh, you know, every time I give a talk and show it, it's, people are shocked. I mean, people in the U S who know the gun problem in the U S are still shocked by when they see the numbers roll out and that I have to stand up there and wait for this thing Mm -hmm. to play out, you know? (laughs) So people are are shocked. And it's that to me, it has like the biggest impact. It's, you know, if I'm standing there showing you this and you are sort of awestruck, that to me is a success. Yeah. I, yeah, I had a question I, for you, Kim. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going interrupt. Go ahead, but, Jake. Um, it was interesting about that visualization to me was that it wasn't just forensic and didn't just look at the data that had happened and just said, here are the people who have died from, uh, from gun violence, but then actually built a sort of rough model to say what, where people would have died otherwise, like drew, you actually drew in uh, World Health Organization data to try to project forward. And I, I thought that was an interesting approach. And I was just sort of wondering what the thought process was behind that. And also, um, if you could comment on a side conversation I'd heard where some people were actually trying to debate sort of the, the correctness of that model, which I think sort of misses the point a little bit. But um, I, I just thought that was very interesting yes. to sort of look ahead and wonder <laughs> what that design process yes, was like for that. Yes, a lot of people... Yeah, a lot of people take issue with that part of it, uh, which I find interesting as well. Um, because you can... It's interesting to me because you could a doctor could say, hey, if you quit smoking now, you could add 10 years mm. to your life or something. You're, that's all we're doing is saying, hey, if you quit you know, shooting, shooting people now, right. you, might live like, <laughs> you might live to be 80 <laughs> based on the statistics. You know? yeah. so, um, the, the drive behind it was that we were... You know, we had sort of tossed around a number of of ways to approach this. And, you know, uh, even internally, it was kind of surprising how divisive we were about gun control. And certain people Mm -hmm. wanted really strict control. And some people said, that doesn't work. How about this? And, you know, we started to almost get into internal arguments about the proper (laughs) approach to these things, which is surprising because we're all like on the same page, right? (laughs) You know? We all want people to be alive. And um, so, so it was kind of surprising there. But then once we focused on victims, it really sort of um, 
solidified the idea about, you know, what this is actually going to look like and how we want to present it. And then, I don't know, it just like out of nowhere, we I had this idea of, well, it's really about the stolen lives. Mm-hmm. It's about mm-hmm. the potential and it's about the things that were taken away. It's not so much about like, oh, you killed somebody and now they're Yeah, gone. I mean, it opens up that alternative reality, you know, it doesn't just say our world is bad, you know, it says there would be a better world. And I mean, I think that's super important because I mean, we, and personally, I'm also a bit torn if everybody should consume like global world news, the way they are presented at the moment all all the time, because I think it just makes you depressed and depression is the surest way of not getting into action. And (laughs) yeah, there's a real danger there. I think if we present too many bad news that people just think it's worth Worthless doing anything, anyways, right? Right, right. And and I've, I found it really interesting that this your visualization also suggests that there would be another world, you know, where these people would live, and right. you know, and should we move towards we're... that world? And you know, and that makes it so strong, probably. Right. Yeah. I I toyed around with an idea early on of like age progressing all of the. Um, like if we had um, portraits of, if we had photos of the victims to like age progress them to oh, their, wow. like when, <laughs> yeah, yeah. when they might, may have died. Uh-huh. And that, yeah. that quickly became very creepy and weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it did, it's Invent sort of like. additional when I, children <laughs> and new families they might have had. And exactly. this is their house. And <laughs> exactly. I mean, it sort of went to that end. Like, yeah, yeah. well, what, you know, what, what who are if? these people and yeah. what, yeah, exactly. The whole what if, what would yeah. happen and who, you know. I mean, you could take statistics to that level if you wanted to. How many, you know, uh, you could say, you know, based on statistics, this person may have lived to 82. They would have died of pancreatic cancer. Uh, But then, you know, what percentage of these people would have kids? How many kids would they have? How many grandkids? Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. You know, would they own a house? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, you could go nuts with this if you wanted to. I mean, we could have created entire lives for these people. Um, And it's really, I mean, it's something that I think about though. When I, when I look at the piece, I look at it still almost every day just to see the the updates and, you know, I, it just really causes you to, to, to think about what may have been for these people, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. think that I think the it's a bit attackable, attackable on that end because I mean if I were a gun a pro gun lobbyist I would say well who knows if they would have lived that long they might have killed each other with a knife or sure. I don't know dynamite or whatever you know <laughs> exactly yeah it's and so true. I think and that's the tricky part really that you're suggesting that all these people would have led a happy life with it's true it's and true and I mean a lot you know some of these people live in very you know violent prone areas um, it's it's very tough to say what what could have been and it, it's very hard to say. If that person didn't have a gun, would they have killed that person with a knife? You know, it's definitely a lot easier to kill someone with a gun. You don't have to be at close range and all sorts of things. So, you know, the belief is there's at least a higher percentage who would be, you know, who with guns would be killed. So, Mm. I mean, there there are so many avenues you could argue up and down and until you're just completely depressed and <laughs> yeah yeah but that's the tricky part the more accurate you get from the scientific point the more the less it fits into a headline right that's true and i think that's exactly. a, a balance we have to strike all the time like how much do we boil it down and how much 
Exactly. Do we I know. respect I... all the details and all the intricacies and all the, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And there's also like, I believe there's this, you know, what I like to call death by disclaimer, which is if you, you know, follow every, you know, like a lot of people took issue with our, you know, age, projected age. You know, if I had taken into every single demographic and this and that, I, we wouldn't have done it because yep. it just would have been, there was no perfect way. You would never get to perfection unless you followed each one of those people around for their entire lives and had every little bit of information about them. There's no way to know that yep. specifically. So, you know, if you start down that path, if you go too far down that path, you will just kill any concept, you know, any idea, any visualization, any creative thing that you have because you will just suffer this death by disclaimer. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, there's just a, like a journalist, you have to develop a sense of what's right and what's the truth. And if you are really, really convinced that this is the way things are, I think then you can make that step and say, okay, I'll go out on a limb and say this right. person will live 64 years, you know, right. because exactly. I know it checks out in the big picture. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm going to put a stake in the ground and I know yeah. that this is roughly right. And, exactly. you know, it may not be exactly, but You know, if you took those 10,000 people and threw them in a hat and, you know, this is roughly what it would look like, you know, give or take a few years here and there. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah. So I, do you think this one will change gun legislation? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be that idealistic. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think there are, the more people who are discussing it and the more people who are putting things out there to, to spark conversation, the better, you know, and we're sort of just adding to that dialogue. So yeah, if, yeah. Mm -hmm. if one person takes away something good from it, then to me, it's worthwhile. I think that has happened. So I think we can be confident. <laughs> <laughs> I for one, yeah. but I don't make laws. Jake, Jake, what's your experience with that, that problem that awareness alone doesn't really move anything and and how do you get people to action like do you have any that's a really really great question um you know i think that's one of the things that I, i'm going to sort of spin that a little bit related to something enrico said earlier which is that um i think we see a lot of people these days who suddenly find themselves with access to amazing data visualization tools and for probably the first time ever a huge amount of data available to them, which means that um, I, th I see more and more people creating data visualizations sort of on their own, in, maybe in a bubble, where they believe that they're going to have some kind of effect or some action. Like I've uh, related to the gun laws issue, I saw a lot of visualizations out about um, how many people had killed themselves, uh, or, or excuse me, had died of gun violence by age group. Um, and it, that that visualization sort of highlighted suicide rates, uh, or you see people going out and actually visualizing where gun owners live. Um, and I think there's, you know, the, this excitement around using data and data visualization to try to raise awareness to a cause, which is absolutely critical. I think it's a very important first step. Um, but I I think one of the things that I, I love about what Periscopic does is that they partner with people who actually 
are sort of familiar with the communities that are being affected. And I think that's one of the things that I would love to see more people really in, in any of the data world doing is, is sort of partnering with people who are, are close to the ground. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to download a data set off of data.gov about uh, pollution and make a pollution graph yeah. of where there's pollution in the U.S. It's another entirely to team up with someone from the EPA and say, you know, what would be interesting to see? What, yeah. what, what here would drive an action? Um, and I, I think that maybe comes back as well to the point about Jer's article about using data viz as, as sort of this end goal to say, ta-da, here's what gun violence looks like or here's what pollution looks like, now mm. everyone go and act, versus um, having a little bit of a, bringing it into more of a process of saying, what do we want to learn that we can, alongside people who know the, the condition, actually adapt to and adjust to? And, mm-hmm. and how do we, we then sort of you know, decide we want to look at something else because of something that we saw in this? Um, it was a little bit of a rambling answer there, but uh, it, it's it's definitely a problem. But I, I I think to me, really the biggest thing would be sort of stronger partnerships with people who are actually addressing these causes. I think that would be really really heartening to me. And I'm happy to expound on that, but that's I'm trying to keep everything within uh, a short answer. Yeah, I think that's a super super important topic, and in a way it's related to something that we discussed. I think many times even in uh, in this podcast that. Basically, you can use visualization as an explanatory tool to communicate an an idea that you have or something that you found in some data set, or you can use it as an exploratory tool. And I think the problem is that the large majority of visualizations we see on the web, which is the the main mean we use to, to see visualizations, to discover new visualizations, is basically using visualization as a way to communicate something, right? But behind that, there might be a lot of exploratory work that is done itself with some kind of visualization tools. So for instance... Uh, I know Moritz has mentioned many times the fact that behind every single visualization he does, there is a lot of extra work, and some Mm. of this extra work is done with tools like Tableau or similar stuff, right? And Mm. and that's always true. And I think that's that's very much connected also to the to the problem of doing visualization, using visualization as an exploratory tool together with people who have the background knowledge to interpret whatever comes from the visualization itself. So I think these all set of things are very much related one to another. But I think, so one thing, maybe I want to ask you this question because I think that what is happening is that we see much more of this kind of visualizations, but just because it's easy to put this kind of visualizations on the web, if you want to be, right. if you want to present the process itself, it makes, you need to either write a very long page description or whatever. So nobody's or a very, very little percentage of people are actually publishing something about the whole process, right? But I think the whole process is happening anyway. And I think that's really, really interesting. I don't know. What's your experience, Kim and Jake? Uh, Jake, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, I thought that was a very interesting point about uh, the web just naturally being the way that we consume a lot of these things. And that maybe if I I understood correctly, maybe you were saying behind the scenes, like with Mortz's creations or with someone else, that there's a lot of actual sort of iteration and work that goes on there. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I think that, that, that really does, I mean, that closely reflects with, with sort of what I've seen. And, um, I, I don't want to take us too far off on a tangent. I'm not sure if I'm answering this question, but I will just sort of comment that I would love to see 
more people talking about process. And actually, you guys are really good about it. I would say, in general, the data viz world and, and design world is actually better, I think, than a lot in talking about how they come up with the final products that they do that you see on the web, all glittering and shiny. Um, but I think with a lot of data in general, um, it's, a, it's really black boxed. I mean, when someone, when a company, even if a company comes out and touts on their blog what they've done with data or how they've created some interactive or visualization, they don't usually talk about the missteps and they don't usually mm. talk about the yeah. data sets they didn't no. use. Sure. And yeah. I, I would love to see uh, more of that. They don't talk about how much time they spent with fixing Unicode errors in Python. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, Jake, I, I think you make a really good point. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of funny because I think there is a lot of mystique around it. and I, But I think that it's also mysterious to us as well. Um, A lot of the stuff I've been talking about in the last year or so uh, at conferences is our process. And when I started doing that talk, it took me forever to write that talk because I had no idea. Even though I did it every day for eight years, it was like, how do I do this? Mm, I know I put this in Tableau, but how do I make the decisions? <laughs> and it's so hard to, to generalize. It's more like a, exactly. a set of dispositions. Like, how do you react when? But it's so hard to 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 say these are the top ten rules you have to follow, and this right. is how it works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. Don't, like, don't you guys don't you guys think that that that's what is actually making the difference? I mean, being able to follow the quote right process. I think it's mm. it's. it's very, very, it's a very important skill, probably more impo- even more important than being able to design a good visualization itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's both. It's a muscle you can train. It's both. Yeah, you know, sure. it's like it's, but it's a muscle you have to train. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it it doesn't fall from the sky in the good side as well as the bad side. So everybody can learn it. I'm I'm totally sure about that. Everybody can learn how to visualize data, mm-hmm. but it's nothing you can just acquire by. Clicking through a few PowerPoint slides, I guess. <laughs> There's no one-click uh, way to save the world, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think this was just clear by now. Yeah, too bad. Bummer. Yeah, bummer. Yeah, <laughs> let's move on. That's <laughs> uh, tricky. But I think it's great that, I mean, also, uh, Jake, what you're doing with DataKind, I think, goes exactly in this direction of gradually teaching Everybody who was involved, like step by step of what it takes, and 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 just yeah, it, it takes a while to get there. I'm, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and thank you for saying that. And I, and you know, not to sound like a broken record, but I think the the biggest thing that we've sort of learned in in doing this is the same thing that I think a lot of data scientists learn, which is that the data actually has very little to do with it when you're starting out. In fact, it's really as I mentioned, those organizations that walk in and say, hey, we've got this, we've got so much data, what should we do? We actually spend a good couple of sessions just asking them about what they do actually do. What is your, you know, if you're um, a, a human rights organization, mm-hmm. like what is your process? What questions do you want answered? What, what is it that would make you better? Um, and from there, then it's the question of saying, okay, could this data actually answer that question? And if not, where could we get some that could? And I think that's, that's to me been, I know this is a little bit off the topic of visualization, but I think, to, I think it relates heavily to anyone working on, really on any sort of data project, whether you're 
coming out with an analysis at the end or a visualization is, is really working with people to figure out what it is they're trying to accomplish uh, with mm. this. I think there is this hype that we really need to be vocal about that data itself is not this magic bullet. And I know that's probably obvious to listeners of this podcast, but in that case, I implore them, tell everyone you know, tell everyone who's talking about this or every relative who's emailing you David Brooks's article to turn around and say, yeah, no, data is not, it's not this end all and be all. And big data is not going to alone just sort of answer all of these, um, these questions for us. We still need the people who are who are familiar with the questions, familiar with the space to really help uh, help guide us to where that data can be a resource in service of those things. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that's, those are the little steps that I think would be really helpful in, in helping people understand uh, when they think about data personally. Right. And to that point too, I think that even when there are people who are skilled at data and analysis and are experts in whatever domain it is, um, two people can have two different worldviews and be looking at the exact same data and have completely different understanding of it, you know? And I think yeah. that, you know, we, we need all of these experts and to the degree that it's still a dialogue at the end of the day. Most of this is still not, you know, you can show the most d- detailed, nuanced, clearest picture and still somebody will read it differently because they will say, well, oh, that just proves that my thinking is correct because it's, <laughs> you know, because of some way, weird way that they are seeing it. And it, I, I mean, that comes up time and time again. And it, it's really fascinating to me. So I think that you're right that those, I mean, the, I think the domain experts need to even drive the dialogue after visualization. Mm. Well, here's something I'd love to ask you guys is how do you deal with the sort of, responsibility around the fact that data can be visualized or represented so many different ways. And, you know, we, we say this a lot in, in the statistics world is that if you torture the data enough, it'll say anything. And I think that's really important because a lot it's of people... It's very true as well. Yeah. Right. Right. It, it's a lot of statistics and data science is it's really more about rhetoric in a lot of ways than, than about sort of fact and truth. And I think there's this false uh, conflation of data with truth. Like if we just get enough data, no one will be able to dispute anything because <laughs> the data is just right there, right? But of course, there are these beautiful stories about um, like the Tesla test drive. If you guys followed that story where a New York Times reporter went out with a, to test the Tesla car, um, the, electric, the fully electric car, and he just wrote about how terrible it was and it broke down and it didn't seem like it was lagging. And Tesla turned around and said, no, hey, we have all the data about that entire ride. The car records. <laughs> the car records the tire pressure, the speed, the charging. And they wrote this really, this like line by line takedown of all this guy's points. But... Um, yeah, but, but in the it, end, it was a, a huge discussion in the end on all the details and all the int- intricacies again of the data and how it's to be interpreted. So, well, and you just used exactly the word how it's to be interpreted. The, the data didn't actually clear up the story; it just presented a different viewpoint. And then you had the in the end, I, I still feel like people kind of throw up their hands and go, "Well, you, we have to trust one of these people." Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, and I, I, I'm so to go back. How is when you're visualizing data, knowing that you could. Mm. You know, with this flick of an aspect ratio, totally change the story you told. Um, how, if there's a responsibility to that or how you sort of manage that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, there's this, I mean, you can, this could be debilitating for a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, it's like if you sat in bed in the morning and thought about all of these things, you just would not get out of bed, you know? Um, <laughs> 
And I mean, there's this great book. I just got it. It's fantastic. It's called um, Raw Data is an Oxymoron. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's, awesome. yeah, it's fantastic. And it talks to, to a lot of these issues that even before you have data, you make a ton of decisions about yeah. Yeah. What, what, what to include, get... what to combine, what what to call what, you know, what what's exactly. what's being labeled as what? Yeah. What is a thirty seven point nine? Yeah. And so Exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean it's it is insane if you stop to question every detail. And so I mean, I think there is a lot of faith that people have to put in to data and to numbers and to statistics and to visualizations and but it's also I mean I think it's healthy to be a skeptic as well and to go back and say well what was their source if I disagree with this you know what where can I go and I mean a lot of times if I read a if I read an article that I find interesting and I they reference a study yet they don't link to the source. So, you know, like I want to go back and check to make sure that they interpret that n- interpreted that mm. number correctly mm. or the way yeah. that I interpreted it. Yeah. You know, so it's a lot of, you know, I think people have to just be rigorous about citing sources and about being clear about their methods. And, you know, it's just if, if you want to do the paper trail back to the beginning, then you can do that if you want to go that whole analysis route or you put your faith in, in all the people that brought that, yeah. data along the way. Yeah. I, I think that's really important just to, to document really clearly of how how you process the data and, and what's behind it, what's the mm-hmm. research maybe behind it, what's the research behind the model you chose for the life expectancy. And I think that, that makes it much uh, cleaner and much more easy to, to debate with or also identify like insecurities where you say, okay, this part we actually don't know exactly but we took the best model we had or something like that. Yeah. The, the other thing is really, I mean... A few years ago, I was much more on the. I had the idea that I'm ex, I'm trying to express the data in its purest form or the information mm-hmm. in its clearest form, and that this is my job. And by now, I'm I'm much more feeling I'm I'm like a photo reporter, you know. So I <laughs> I go to these lands, you know, like crazy countries of of data, <laughs> and I take a lot of pictures, like really many pictures with the people there and the food they eat and you know the funny animals. <laughs> But in the end, you you come back and then you have to think like, okay, what were the three photos that characterize my whole experience in one picture? And it can be like a close-up of of a shoe, you know? (laughs) Or it can be like this huge panorama or so. It just has to match my perception of what's, what's right. Well, and that's such a great analogy because I, I think, I mean, it just fits perfectly, in that you're, especially because I love picturing the, the calming shores of the data countries that you're <laughs> on horse, relaxing horseback. on. Horseback. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but I think, you know, for I don't know how this happened culturally, if it was immediately apparent when photography first came out or if it took time, but mm-hmm. I, I feel that the public, when they look at a picture, sort of aware of the photographer, aware of the fact that I know that if Moritz comes back and shows me his photo album, I've sort of already subconsciously absorbed that I know it was because of where he went and he likes this. And of course, there's pictures of cakes or whatever, because he always takes pictures of cakes. Like that's that's sort of, or whatever, but that's sort of baked in. And, And I wonder if there's a way that we can raise awareness in the public who presumably should be consuming these data visualizations around the subjectivity of that process as well. Um, and as you pointed out, the subject, not the subjectivity of the data itself, even if you followed, you know, a, a cited source, uh, like you said, so many decisions went into creating that data yeah. that I, I don't want to create a world of, 
I agree with you. I don't want to create a world of skeptics where you have to go back and actually, you know, if you're going to use stop and frisk data, mm. go back and interview every single person who was recorded and see if they actually were stopped and frisked for that thing. Um, I don't want to see that kind of level of skepticism, but I would mm-hmm. love if people would at least know what you pointed out about raw data. Mm. Um, and actually on the stop and frisk example, uh, to, to relate this, there was, I don't know if anyone followed this, but in New York, there was a little bit of a brouhaha around a couple of visualizations of stop and frisk data. And I know that the NYCLU had taken the data, which I should point out is totally publicly available. If you want to go to the uh, NYPD website, you can download all the stop and frisks in incredible detail over the past 10-ish years. Um, and a lot of people have taken that data and visualized it to try to say something. WNYC here uh, did something about showing stop and frisks versus where guns were found to sort of see mm-hmm. if they correlated visually. Um, somebody else commented on that and said, look, they didn't use the right color scheme, so it, it leads to this misleading conclusion that stop and frisks are happening far away from where guns are actually found. But if you shade it a different way, it looks like mm-hmm. they are. And there were all these debates around the different visualizations, yet no one actually went back and said, what was the process for mm-hmm. the NYPD collecting this data? And if you actually, mm-hmm. I mean, I shouldn't say no one, but fewer people. And when you actually get into that, you find out that, in fact, huge numbers of records are just missed because not every police officer writes down every stop and frisk. You know, they may just go up and they may just go up and talk to someone and then not actually record it. Um, there's huge political aspects in the ways that they even do record it. If you actually look over the different years, the the races, the actual race designations, white, black, Hispanic, actually change because mm. at some point someone decided there needed to be white Hispanic and black Hispanic. Mm. So what are the huge political and social biases that mm-hmm. were involved in even creating those taxonomies before even getting to any of the visualization of any of this? So yeah. anyway, long way around to saying, could we raise that same awareness of the subjectivity of all of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But well, you know, yeah, the think... discussion that happens is so you know worthwhile already if people start to criticize a chart, you know, because then they actually engage in actively questioning the data and arguing mm-hmm. on the basis of data, at least, you know, and, yeah, and not on the true. basis of opinions or mm-hmm. I don't know <laughs> how they feel that's today, a... <laughs> you know. And so that's that's already something, even if it's a big mess in the end and you feel there's no progress. I think this is progress already. So Yeah, that, that's true. You're getting them one step closer to actually yeah. thinking about the data. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Another approach that we've seen out there is to... Um, we worked with this great organization called Project Vote Smart, and they have uh, a board of, I don't know, 12 people or something. It's, a, it's an even number. And they if somebody drops off the board and they have to get a new person, the new person on the board has to get their opposite <laughs> to join the board. Huh. That's awesome. <laughs> so that there's there it's like they're aiming for perfect parity. So even if you're a moderate, you still have to find someone who's like moderate, you know, different enough, you know, they're still moderate probably, but they're different on the the viewpoints that you have that sort of lean one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh and if you're way on one end, you have to find someone who's like way on the other end of the spectrum. Um and it's really fascinating. I think it's a really great approach to sort of build in your own watchdog group of, you know, so that way you can vet everything along the way of, you know, is this data, is this okay? They do a ton of research, so, mm-hmm. you know, they have to um, internally decide, is this, you know, are we capturing this data correctly? That's awesome. What was the name of that group again, Kim? It's Project Boat Smart. Project Boat Smart. 
Vote. Uh, vote smart. That makes more sense. <laughs> you know, just smart voting. Nice jacket. Uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's very <laughs> controversial. Um, so this actually, um, I, I've been talking about this one interactive that I adore from the New York Times on the um, the jobs report. Um, if any, I don't know if anyone saw this, but it was when the jobs report came out right before the election, and the the interactive had sort of the raw jobs number. At, at, in the uh, sort of center. It was just the raw data. But then there were these red and blue glasses on either side. And if you press the red button, the red glasses, yeah, yeah, yeah. it would shift over. Yeah, it would show the interpretation and visualization of the data that supported the Republican view. And if you move to the blue side, it showed the interpretation that supported the um, the Democrats' view. And again, leaving aside the fact that the the quote-unquote raw data itself has all these biases about what an, what unemployment even is, leaving that aside, you can see this, by seeing the comparison of the two visualizations, I think it makes you instantly aware that there are these two extremes and they come from the same sort of raw materials. And uh, I, so your, the Project Vote Smart thing reminds me a little bit of that in that if you can have someone from the opposing viewpoint come and say, hey, this is what this would look like in the other extreme, that maybe it makes you at least aware of, of the fact that there's not sort of this one true interpretation. Um, I just really liked that approach. Oh, well, I disconnected again. Jake, you're back? I believe so. Ah, excellent. We just heard a protest. We heard a protest <laughs> last word, so. Uh, that it was a good ago. approach? Probably. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> that was a cool approach. <laughs> I would guess so. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> Perfect timing. Let me ask something to Kim, okay. Um, <clears throat> so, going back to our initial question can visualization save the world? Can you tell us something about the biggest success stories that you've ever seen in in data visualization? I always answer I that's always ask this question and the answer is always the same. It's kind of like, uh, mm, well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but um, I think for our own work, it's tough. We don't get a lot of um, feedback after we release them into the wild. So that's so it's kind of frustrating. And a lot of our clients, you know, they're organizations, they're nonprofits who perhaps don't have huge budgets to go out and figure out the success of, of any of these things. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that we're struggling with um, over time and something we're trying to get our clients to do more of is um, to not preach to the choir. You know, I think mm -hmm. that a lot of people like to preach to the choir. They, mm -hmm. you know, they... Mm -hmm put out things that are branded in, you know, in a certain way that have, tell a story in a certain way that sort of any outsider, anybody who doesn't share that opinion is going to just immediately turn away from because they know that it's going to differ from their opinion. So being more inclusive is definitely on our radar. Um, but I think for me, the personally, um, aside from the guns piece, which I think had a huge impact um, in terms of what I personally was trying to um, achieve with it or what Periscopic was trying to achieve with it. Um, I think that that's sort of a different, um, a different piece. But there was a, the piece we did for Project Vote Smart, which is a voter education piece. And it's, it basically allowed people to enter in their, their views on certain issues. So like 10 to 12 issues, I could say I'm, I'm pro-choice and, you know, I said, how do you feel about gun control? And they'd answer certain ways and how important it is to them. 
and it would match them up with their best candidates. And the first version we put out was at the congressional level. And I don't know if how much you know about the U.S. Congress, but there are lots of candidates in the beginning. And most people don't know all of the candidates who are running in their state. And so when they see this for the first time, they're like, oh, wow, there, you know, there's Sally Jane, and I have no idea who she is. I've never heard of her, and I have to vote now. <laughs> and so, so when you're confronted with the actual data, and, and all of these people have been researched, so we know, do they compare with your views or not? Suddenly, people were writing us saying, I had no idea I'm in complete alignment with the Green Party, mm-hmm. and I didn't know that was even an option. So that project to me was the most successful in terms of of impact. Um, There was one guy who wrote to us and said, I just registered to vote because now I know who to vote for. And it was, I mean, those kinds of stories are are fantastic just in terms of, you know, people don't have access to that, those huge amounts of data. They would have to be, you know, political researchers to, to figure all that stuff out. And here's a tool that just helps them spend three minutes to figure that out. So, so those are the biggest impact ones for, for, for us personally at Periscopic. Um, yeah. And then I think just there's, there's been some historic ones in the world that, you know, I spoke to some of them earlier that I think have had, you know, obvious, huge impacts in, in, in our society. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Well, that's the kind of thing that I would like to see more often told uh, in websites, blogs, and all other sources. It's so hard to find sources where people say, look, this visualization had this kind of impact. And uh, I think we can't measure what happens in people's heads. You know, that's (laughs) that's sort of the the problem. But I I would also be super interested in studies like show people the gun visualization, you know, the gun murders and find some way of of sort of measuring if their opinion has changed at least a bit. You know, there there must Mm -hmm. be a way to to measure these things probably. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm actually thinking about doing that. Yeah, yeah, you should. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But but it's very hard, actually. <laughs> yeah. Jake, are you yeah, I mean, aware of any like experiments or any studies, or, or do you have yeah. any 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 good stories on on impact? Well, I'm the so to, on the point you just made. I'm the wet blanket that says that measuring <laughs> sort of changes in opinion is you know it's so difficult. I mean, this yeah. is something advertising. You know, that's every advertiser's holy grail, right? If I put a yeah, billboard in yeah, the yeah, section, yeah. how many more people buy the product? Yeah, and yeah. it's, woof. I, I mean, we're getting, obviously, we're getting closer as we get more data streams because we're just getting more bottom-up information. And heck, maybe one day you could actually do some kind of experiment. But um, I, think it's, I think it's better to talk about sort of the, the, the different measures of, of impact in terms of maybe just, you know, who, this doesn't sound so sexy, but... How people are changing, starting a discussion, like, you know, just what these visualizations are getting people to think about differently. Um, that's an unsatisfying answer, I know, but it's just something that we face a lot in our work is that everyone wants to prove that the thing they did, they want to measure, they want to believe we must be able to measure that the thing we did caused this dramatic needle shift yeah. in, the pu- in the public. It's just so, so difficult. Um, 
And from a statistical point of view as well, to be able to say that your intervention alone was solely responsible for that mm. is, you know, really, really tricky. Yeah, but can't um, we have like one game changer visualization so we can oh, all oh, yeah. say this <laughs> sure, really sure. changed the whole <laughs> yes. game? I mean, totally. Well, so what's oh, funny? Man. No, I'm going to take the. I'll take another boring answer to that, but one that I actually think is still inspiring, which is going back to what you were saying earlier about. The visualizations we see out there being on the web as being sort of the big promoted ones. But if you think of visualization as, as just the aspect of vis, you know, exploring large amounts of data such that you can see things that you never saw before that drive an action, I'd say I see that happen internally for small groups all the time. And I'm sure that um, must happen all the time at Periscopic. But I, I would even just think about... Um, some projects that we've done at Datakind. The really basic one was that a group uh, it was trying to, uh, let's see, how should I put this? They had a, a community knowledge worker program where they had people in Uganda with cell phones that would go out to rural farmers and basically provide information for them. I mean, it, you're very information poor if you're a rural farmer in Uganda. You don't even know what the weather is going to be like the next day. You have no idea what crop prices are around you. And so this program was really really beneficial from a technological view because you'd have these knowledge workers go out, ask the farmers, hey, what do you want to know? Do you mm -hmm. want to know what the weather's like? Do you want to know what the crop prices are like? And they'd be able to actually search that for them and give them the information uh, with the hopes that that info would help bring them out of poverty. Really cool project. And the kind of project that if you do well, if you can improve that program, you may actually bring people out of poverty, aka change the world. And what was really cool about it was that because these are cell phones, you're getting all this amazing, beautiful data out of this. You know, if you look back 10 years, the way you would have had to assess this program would have been to send someone out there with a clipboard to go around and survey all the knowledge workers and all the farmers and say, did you do this then and blah, 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 and how was it? Would have been terrible. And, and even then, you have to deal with all the biases about people not reporting um, correctly because they're being asked about it and they're going to say that they did better than they really did. Leaving all that aside, they have this amazing data of, of amazing data from the cell phones of every knowledge worker and every farmer they talked to, the lat lawn, the time, and all the information that they asked for. And so with this, they actually started just doing really basic visualizations of their data, like looking at the, the, uh, the trajectory, so uh, excuse me, looking at the distance that each knowledge worker would travel, or understanding how many searches each knowledge worker was doing. And by doing this, it was, so, I mean, I wouldn't say any of these were sexy visualizations. They weren't pushing the forefronts of design, but they were, they gave a viewpoint into this data that immediately caused these, the program runners to sit down and go, oh, these people in, or this set of knowledge workers in this district, they're not, you know, getting out as far as some of the others. Maybe we should give them bicycles. Maybe that would in increase how far they get out. Or some people, in, a, in what ended up being a very basic plot, um, they showed that some people were doing a huge number of searches, way more searches than anyone else was doing. And they thought, whoa, we had no idea. Until we literally just made a histogram, we had no idea that that was happening. Um, and then what was funny was they dug even further, and this is sort of a side note. So, well, I should say, they looked at this histogram and they said, ooh, we want to learn more. Who are those people? What are they doing? Mm -hmm. How do we make everybody like them? And mm -hmm. as they dug deeper, they realized, oh, wait a second. These people are actually doing an inhuman number of searches. They're doing hundreds a minute. And so they, the next question then became, huh, well, is that because the cell phone's broken and they think it's not sending, but it actually is, so they're hitting the button? Or are they actually just sitting at home and never talking to a single farmer and just actually just clicking the button and trying to get, you know, uh, boost their status? So 
that may seem like a, an unsexy answer in that the visualization itself wasn't amazingly groundbreaking on the visualization front, and it wasn't this one visualization known by the world that suddenly caused everyone to stop shooting each other or you know, get, yeah, yeah. Get, everyone got fed. Yeah. But it was hugely instrumental. I mean, these guys just didn't even have those skills. And when they saw that, when they went from what was a sophisticated reporting database that they had, but that was mostly used for sort of reports, and saw that visualization... That got them to, again, ask more questions and change the program. And if they keep doing what they're doing, they've been doing great work, they're going to you know, bring, tangibly bring people out of poverty. I think that's, mm. that's the kind of stuff that I see it, happening it all the time. It comes back to Jay's article, and there is no silver bullet, but it's, it's a process thing. I think it's, it's, really, yeah. it's really clear. Yeah. 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 Well, and I'll say, you know, what a, a, a side note to that. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll stop rambling in a second, but... Um, <laughs> I think we're in this marvelous time where it's almost critical for all of us who are doing any kind of scientific inquiry to have visualization skills. You know, if you think of the analogy of how we used to do science in the old days, the way I, I kind of see it personally is that the observable world was sort of right in front of me. If I wanted, you know, if I'm Galileo sitting there thinking, well, why is it that, uh, you know, this ball rolls at this speed down a ramp? Like I, I sort of observe the world occurring and then try to build models around it and collect data. Then he sat down mm -hmm. and rolled balls down ramps. But we're in this new world of intangibles. There, there's, there are things that we can't just observe. I, I can't observe uh, bird migration patterns across the Southeast Asia just from my desk. I can't observe you know, the subtle things like the way that people um, share information online. But we now have the data that, you know, that our computers are observing that. That's the beautiful thing about recording all of this. And we now need the tools to see. We, and we need the way to now observe from those, those interactions, those digital interactions, what the heck is happening so that we can explore it further. And, uh, and that's why I feel like visualization can not only change the world, it must change the world. It's the skill that we all need to be able to actually see what's going on beyond just what's in front of our own faces now. That's all. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so only, have, also only yeah. if it's embedded in this bigger process of inquiry and discussion and everybody becoming a bit more scientific probably and yeah, just learning how to yeah. work with, with data and hypotheses and assumptions and so on. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we have a couple of Twitter questions. Shall we, shall we answer at least a few of them because we had like really 10 or so? Yeah, we are. So one I found really good is from Yuri Engelhardt. I found it good because I asked the same thing myself all the time. And he says, is it a good idea to openly refuse to work for companies involved in unethical practices? He says, for instance, mm. child labor arms trade. But of course, any company of a sufficient size is probably evil. <laughs> That's at least my theory. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> That's my hypothesis I'm putting out there. So how, how, how would you deal with that? Like, Kim, probably you, you also know this question from your discussions internally. How do, how do you deal with that? What was the first part of the question? How, is if, it okay? if it's a good idea to work with companies... Oh. That you feel might be unethical in some sense, or where it's do you draw the line? Like, is pharma already bad, or is right. is oil bad, or what, what's what's yeah. good, what's bad? I mean, right, right. I mean, I think that's it's all a gut check in the in the end. It, it really is. It's like, well, how do I feel about this personally? Um, you know, one of our large clients. I'm not going to name names. But <laughs> one of our large clients. I, you know, historically, I've not been a huge fan of. And when, you know, when we originally were approached by them, it was 
a huge discussion internally whether or not we would take the project on. And it wasn't until they gave us a project that was specifically something they were putting a huge amount of money behind. So for us, it was not a huge amount of money for us, but a huge amount of money for the cause. Uh, And so we felt like, okay, we're going to set aside our issues with this company because they are dedicating a huge amount of money for this medical research that we feel is really needed in the world. And so we would like to help them tell that story and show Hmm. what's going on there. And so that, I I mean, it's, it's all about personal preference and how, you know, if you feel like you're, do you feel like you're helping them do those things that you feel are bad or are you helping them into realizing that they're doing bad things and that, you know, (laughs) can you help train them to be good people? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, to us, there are a lot of people doing bad things and it's not just oil and pharma and, you know, gun makers and, and whatever. There are a lot of, you know, companies and organizations that they look good on the surface and then when you dig a little deeper they're like okay well they're not actually mm-hmm. doing as good as they say or they're you know greenwashing a lot of things mm-hmm. they're trying to look better than they are uh you know so it's just a, a personal discussion you have to have with your soul but I you guess. have no hard rules in a sense you, you decide on every case just by what, a, what, what you feel is right yeah exactly it's a case-by-case basis yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Jake, what do you think? Is that a is that a good strategy to to say for some industries I don't work or for some companies? Well, the only dif- I can say from Datakind's point of view, um, it, for us, it's really just how much money they'll pay us. So if they're willing to pay a lot, then we don't really care. <laughs> um, just kidding. I, ho- oh, I hope my, my speaker's on. Please edit this part in. I'm kidding. That's obviously a joke. We'll cut it there. We have another there. scoop, the dark side of it. <laughs> the, right. side. the evil twin. Really yeah. right. um, I told you I, at I the beginning. I was so excited. <laughs> I, I was so excited when you asked Kim because I was hoping that I would finally learn the answer to this question. Uh, um, in that we we only have the most obvious of hardline rules, uh, which are no extremist groups. I, and I guess you could argue, as Kim was saying, I think it raised the interesting question, if you could somehow be the one to turn them around, maybe that would be the, yeah. the difference. But um, uh, but yeah, but our again, we, we also go by a, a case-by-case basis um, for this. And... To us, I'll say maybe the one, the only other thing I can add to what Kim said was that we try, and we'll see how successful we are, to find groups that we feel are going to do justice to the data that aren't hiring us just to fulfill an agenda, whether it's even as obviously terrible as like child trafficking. I think it was the first example was child trafficking. It's a pretty easy one to say no to. Um, but even if they're going to use it to twist it into their own agenda. Like if you're, again, a human rights campaign uh, who wants to hire us to pr- to prove something about you know their point, instead of saying, let's explore the mm-hmm. data and we want to use data as part of our process so we do our jobs better and, and can do better things. Anyone who says, oh yeah, we really want to show that XY government is corrupt. That, that's something that we need to, that we take seriously and um, tend to shy away from if we can't convince them out of. But God, I wish I really wish there were a better answer. Um, I would be curious, actually, to uh, to ask a question back to that. Have you guys seen examples, or Kim, maybe in your own experience, have you felt that you've actually sort of changed someone's mind or worked with one of these big companies 
so big that they're sufficiently evil that you, uh, <laughs> that you, you know, sort of turned them away or got them to do something good with your work? I, I sincerely doubt it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, those large companies are machines in and of themselves. Yeah. You'd have to be pretty, uh, you know, integrated into their entire process to make any sort of change. I think even, you know, full, you know, teams and departments inside those organizations have trouble making change within the companies. So, so I doubt that that's happened with anyone. Um, certainly hasn't happened with us. But I think back to the original question, I think for us, we always try to err on the side of being safer than sorry. You know, you never mm-hmm. want to end up doing something for someone that you regret doing and wish you hadn't done, you know? So for us, it's just like, hey, how does everyone feel about this? We have a big discussion of like, okay, this is questionable. Should we do it or not? And more often than not, we turn things down if we're even bringing up the question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great call. Yeah. Enrico or Moritz, have you ever run into that situation? Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, I once did a, a job for a pharma company and afterwards I thought it wasn't a bad job at all. It was really nice and everything was okay. But afterwards I thought, okay, I, I don't, somehow I don't like that type of industry. And, and then I started to, to, to think about like what types of projects I want to do or not. And I mean, so, and then I started turning down requests from, yeah, specific types of industries just without even looking at the details. So. That's sort of my experience with that, but it's it's very hard because, yeah, as as you said, there's all of them are gray. It's just different shades of, <laughs> of right. gray, and and the other part is really you can have super nice people inside, like really big organizations that mm-hmm. turn out to be, you know, in in some maybe a bit evil, but you might have great great people trying to change things there, and then you're exactly yeah. in that difficult spot, like. Who do you support? And yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You want to move on to another question, Moritz? Sure. You want to read it, Moritz? I can, sure. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so Scott Scott Murray asked aligned left on Twitter. Um, it's a good one too. What concerns are there about representing in visualization those who did not ask for your representation? I like yes. this one. Yeah, that's that, that that's tricky. <laughs> so, Jake, you also brought up that example of the map of the gun owners. I think that was a very. Mm. I think there was a a really. I mean, for me, it it was a bit shocking also to see this because I mean, oh, apparently the addresses of these gun owners were there and. But it's yeah. exactly that step of then putting them on a map that makes it much more tangible and actually a call to action of some sorts, you know? Yeah, you're right. Although <laughs> it's just a little technical conversion and you could say, I just put it on a map, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, how, how do you feel about these these issues? Uh, I mean, I, I personally feel like it, it, that's a, a huge concern in a lot of what we do. Um, and I think it ties in with what Kim was saying earlier about uh, but just in the way that there's no such thing as raw data, there's no such thing as like impersonal data. I mean, I guess no. you could really stretch it, but I just feel, especially in the sort of work that we do, data is highly personal. And there's even just, like you said, just putting it on a map lets people into other people's lives and viewpoints and, and, and whole things that that could have very serious ramifications. I actually have a lot of... Uh, I. 
I, I have a lot of issues with that visualization of, of the gun owners' homes, even though I know it's easy to create. Um, because I think you're, <laughs> uh, let's see how to put this. You are, in, like you said, inviting some action or some conversation that you're not then taking part in beyond that. You're just sort of like, inc- it feels to me like you're inciting the masses and then not taking responsibility for anything that happens after that, for better or for worse. Um, and so that uh, that's just sort of my thought on it. Um, I don't know. I'd like to hear other people's thought on, on that or that visualization. I have other related thoughts, but. Yeah, I, it, that is a, such a tricky area for me. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm all about freeing the data and I'm a huge sort of anarchist inside. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, part of me wants to just put everything out there so we can all just know everything and I know who my neighbor is and I know how to, you know, you know, they may seem all nice when they come over and chat, but little did I know they're stockpiling weapons or something, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and I mean, that whole, that issue comes up a lot with, I mean, when they started doing the sex offender lists in the U.S., mm. that, that has been a huge concern since then. I mean, there have been a lot of issues around that with people, you know, targeting those homes and really targeting those people who, you know, may be on those lists for completely different reasons than somebody's idea of what a sex offender is, you know? Mm. Um, so there's, I mean, that is such a tricky area. And, you know, we ran into that issue as well with the gun visualization that, you know, the 2013 data we have is, has names, it has towns, you know, it's, it's there, it's collected, mm. it's published in articles online. So, you know, to me, it's more about personalizing that. And it's, you know, that is a victim of violent crime. So it's, you know, they're not here to sort of, right, exactly. And so it's sort of like, I felt like we were sort of taking up their cause. Um, But there was another, um, one of the first projects I did before I realized I was doing data visualization was a some friends of mine and I started a group that would go around and we gathered data about uh, sexual assault and rape in Portland. And we made signs for everybody who was raped. And it said the date of when they were raped and the neighborhood. And so we, and we'd go around and post the signs in the neighborhoods. And it was really interesting to see the, the breadth of responses. Um, Most of the responses were very positive. People who were, um, you know, just sort of shocked that it happened in their neighborhood, as is always the case with a violent crime. Uh, and then there were a lot of women who had been sexually assaulted or raped who just came up to us or emailed us later or whatever and were like, wow, that was really powerful for me. Thank you for putting it out into the open because those things, those crimes generally get swept under the rug and most of them aren't prosecuted. And the ones that are, uh, you know, very rarely uh, are, um, you know, that that person is very rarely incarcerated. So it has a very low rate of success. Mm. So, um, and did you put so the signs were, at the places where that actually happened or, or roughly? Not uh, in, in the, the same neighborhood. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, in the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. it was still, we felt like it wasn't infringing on anyone's uh, privacy. And mm-hmm. in fact, we didn't have that specific. Um, we didn't have like addresses or anything. We sometimes had cross streets or, or things like that. But, um, 
but we didn't want, we put them in public spaces. So they were like in parks or on street medians and that sort of thing. Um, but then there were some people who were really freaked out <laughs> and, you know, sort of offended that we were bringing that up. And so that to me was also sort of a success because if, if that is so frightening to someone to see that reality, then, then they need to see it. And mm-hmm. to, me, I, to me, it's a, that is sort of a hidden crime that, that is underreported for various reason, reasons. And so, yeah, no, no, none of those people chose to be represented. They didn't ask us to do that. But out of our own personal experiences, we felt like it was powerful and it was, it was good to bring those voices out into the public. So mm-hmm. those are just specific instances, but I mean, there that's a huge gray area as well of, you know, what I think, and it's, for me, it's about putting yourself in that, in that person's shoes, the people that you are representing without yeah. their permission, yeah. you know, how do I, how would I and feel? Think for a minute, like, how would, how would you feel? I think that's an excellent mm-hmm. test. Like if I was a data point in this visualization, like how exactly. would I feel about <laughs> Right. Must be weird, like by that. the way. Yeah. yeah. Must be and really give people weird. the benefit of the doubt too. Like you can't just say I'm against gun owners and I'm going to plot all their things on the map. And oh, how would I feel if I was a gun owner? Well, you know, here's my opinion of them. You have to really <laughs> yeah. envision a real person who is com- completely innocent <laughs> and fine yeah. and just likes to hunt, you know, once a year or something. Mm. You know, so. I think people have to be realistic about about that person as yeah, well. Yeah. But yeah. I, one thing I, I got much more sensitive is about that this anonymized data is not so anonymous anymore once you have enough metadata and once you mm-hmm. start to connect you know, different data mm-hmm. sources. So recently there was a study that if you have only four points of space-time yeah. coordinates like tracked by a cell phone, you can fairly confidently identify the person among like mm-hmm. millions. Because it's so special, the information we have, and so specific that very few points are enough to actually identify somebody, like although mm-hmm. it's anonymized in in, in quotes. And mm-hmm. I think this is something to to be careful about when you when you do, yeah, work with people data. And as we said, all all data is people data. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's actually that's a, a really great point about the four points on the cell phone, um, because I think what it. To me, the, what I think gets people feeling spooky about it is that it was something that was so innocuous on its own that allowed you to identify something very, what we felt was private. It somehow transcended this mm. kind of amorphous boundary of what we wanted to share and what we didn't. Um, and I should say, I'm a big open data advocate, and I actually don't think that we should be hiding from these things. But there was an article recently about a guy who got an ad on Facebook that said, uh, you know, are you having trouble coming out of the closet? Like, do you need help coming out of the closet? Mm. Um, and he actually did. was actually at the time uh, was struggling with how he was going to um, come out. But he, of course, this, this somehow struck in him the, the creepy chord. And that's usually what you'll mm. see in the articles is, oh, data was creepy again. Um, and, but he started to explore like why it was, you know, why it was that Facebook actually ID'd him as that. And of course... Facebook's doing nothing nefarious. It's it's just a very simple similarity match. A lot of the people that are friends with people like your friends and who like the things that you like also happen to have trouble coming out of the closet. Um, but it was the the article then started to talk about why it was that that was uh, why he felt 
uh, this moment when we sort of transcend this boundary we've set up in our heads of what's private to us. And they mm-hmm. related it to road rage, actually. Um, and so that when you get into a car, you subconsciously <clears throat> perceive, you subconsciously associate the space around your car as your personal space, as if it's your physical space. Yeah, right. And if someone mistreats that space, if they cross that boundary, you suddenly become inexplicably angry. And, if, or, you know, at least that's how they you know, portray yeah, yeah. Like, why would you be so mad? But it's because it's yours. And so um, mm-hmm. I think it's sort of interesting to, I don't really have a, I don't know if I have a point here. I'm <laughs> just <laughs> interesting thinking about as data becomes more and more open and this innocuous data just gets out there and, mm. you know, there will be connects on every door. So just by my gate, you'll know where I was. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you mean, do you mean, do you want to say that basically data about you is not necessarily you? So it's, you shouldn't feel like if that your data is, it's you, right? Or it's part of you, or it's part of you. Yeah, right? it's it's it, yeah. It's if somebody does something with your data, it's not something something with you. That that's what you want to say, right? Correct. Think, yeah, no. So, so, well, something like that. I think. I think. Uh, <laughs> I think probably I should just end this as an interesting story. Um, but say that. <laughs> no, but honestly, guess, honestly, when Moritz was saying, for instance, that what was the study saying that four pieces of data can actually point directly to you, I think. I mean, it, it's not going to be better in the future. Probably, it's going to be worse, right? Yeah. So sure. at some point, we should. Uh, maybe I don't know. That's my take on it. Maybe at, at some point we should just stop worrying about it because there's no way to go back to mm. where we were. I In mean, Germany, that, there's a whole movement called post-privacy, and and they are all for embracing, you know, getting. They, I mean, they they overdo it a bit just for the fun of it. But they <laughs> they say like do away with all that privacy. Yeah, yeah. Stuff, you but, know, why 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 cling to that old concept? Yeah, right? yeah. But I can see where this comes from. I mean, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it's not I, no. totally silly. I, you know, the first time I heard someone say that, I was aghast. I said, why would, you know, he said that you should open up all your data because it's going to be anyway and there's nothing yeah. to be in private. Yeah. But it's and true. Thought, it's oh, actually true. Yeah, but I, yeah, I've come around <laughs> to that idea that you're right. There's no, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. And maybe the new step is for us to, as data storytellers, as it were, find ways to be the voice of good in this world to say, you know, the appropriate ways of, of, exposing, you know, drawing conclusions about people or, or the, the responsible ways of mm-hmm. using this in this yeah. new, new future that we find ourselves in. Yeah. I Guys, I, I, I think we should kind of think about stopping at some point. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, it's really sad that we have to stop, but uh, I fear it's going to take... It, we've been talking for around one hour and a half so far. It's probably okay. more than any other episode and I fear it's going to be too long. Maybe we should oh, okay. make a part part two. I don't know. Saving the world with this part two. What, what do you think, Saving Maureen? the world with a vengeance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This time for real. For real, yeah. yeah. And, free, and free yourself. Give your data and, away. And post-privacy. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. No, <laughs> Oh, really, it's really, it's hurting myself that we have to stop, but I think we really have to stop. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, I would actually keep talking with you guys for another couple of hours. <laughs> right. It's been great. Yeah, it. thank you guys so much for having me. Was, yeah, uh, when thanks I was for here, the... it was fun. <laughs> yeah, it's been great. It's been great. No, seriously, we should do it again sometime in the future. That'd be great. That'd be, yeah. Who wants to host? I'll do it in person. 
Yeah. Oh, that'd be fun. Come that would be fun. We need to come to New York. Yeah. Well, so two yeah, of us like... are here, so it's, <laughs> it's not too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and I think me and Jake, we are not too far either in New York. We are. You are in it's Brooklyn, so tragic. right? Yeah, we're, it's we're like so a tragic. fifteen-minute walk from one another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's so sad. Yeah. Oh, we should have actually <laughs> done it there. this way. You should have come in my office and. Oh uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. All right. Next time. Yeah. Now that I next know time. that the stupid <laughs> Skype is so bad here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you guys. Bye thank bye. You. Thanks Take for the care. excellent conversation. It was yeah. really nice. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. See you guys. Bye. Bye.